glad that he loves us. Amen? Where would we be without the love of God? Well, good morning. Good to see you here this morning. Good to have you in the Lord's house. And as you can tell, I've got a little allergy that's getting in my, I've been in my throat and trying to work it out. And, and uh, so uh, welcome to Florida, right? And uh, so I'm going to keep this mic close to me and that way we'll work through this together. But this morning as we uh, open God's Word and one of the things that always is something that as believers, when we talk about prayer, Don was talking about prayer and he, and we do all have testimonies and answers for how God has answered prayer in our life. Hopefully you have testimonies when God has answered prayer in your life in some form or fashion, but there are also times when we feel like we go through seasons of what we might call the silence of God, where we feel like he's just not answering and responding the way that we would like. Anybody ever feel that way? Anybody might be in that? Well, if you're not, you will, uh, because it's part of the journey. This is a journey, and the first message I preached here a couple of months back was about the valleys. You're either, you're either going into a valley, you're in a valley, or you're coming out of a valley. That's kind of the way life works, isn't it? And there are seasons where we feel or sense that in this journey, that God is not hearing or answering our prayer. Um, a godly mother prays for her wayward son, and she prays and faithful and is doing all those things, not that we have to perform to earn God's ear, but she's praying for him faithfully, has assurances that God is hearing, but yet her son is still in a prodigal season, still wayward, still far wife pray for, prays for her husband after 20 some odd years of marriage uh, he decides that he wants to abandon the marriage uh, leave that marriage and she prays for restoration and it doesn't come husband prays for his wife who is sick and prays for her healing has assurances by so called people with a gift of healing that she's healed and yet she dies of that cancer. I'm always cautious about that kind of thing because we have to, again, we don't know always the mind of God. We pray in faith, but we have to be careful that we don't become presumptuous. A young man prays for deliverance over areas in his life that he knows are not pleasing to God, and it seems as though he never finds that deliverance. Sometimes it seems like maybe the temptation might even grow worse. You get the idea that there are times in which we pray and we have that assurance of God's word, but yet there's this mystery of why God does not answer our prayer. The psalmist, if you've ever read the Psalms, and I hope you have, pray the Psalms because they're very transparent. There's great honesty, brutal honesty in the Psalms. You know, David prays prayers like, God, I want to kill my enemies. Of course, we've never, ever said those kind of things. But David was very honest 
And if he felt abandoned by God, guess what? He said, God, where are you? In fact, talking about unanswered prayer in Psalm 10:1, just listen. He says, why, O Lord, do you stand far off? Why are you hiding in times of my trouble? Here's the issue for us this morning, is that as believers, we struggle and will struggle with unanswered prayer. We don't sometimes talk about it. I don't, you know, I think sometimes in our circles that maybe we've grown up in or influences that somehow if we talk about it, somehow that's a lack of faith because there's a school of thought that if you just always are positive and speaking positive things, you always get what you want. Here's a newsflash. That's crazy. That doesn't happen. Okay? That doesn't happen. And so sometimes we think if we talk about this, you know, it'll cause people to lose their faith. Well, let me tell you something. When you hide behind a charade of a false understanding of who God is, and people discover that that God doesn't match with their quest and their journey as they study the Word, that will cause them to lose faith. Because they, you know, I don't think people are afraid with being honest and recognizing the fact is that there are times that God does not answer, or let me say it this way, God does not answer it. I believe God always answers, we just don't like his answer, right? God does not have a problem with hearing, the problem is in responding. If you have your Bibles, turn over to... uh, and I'm trying to switch this, but it's not, nothing's happening, so I'll let you work on that up there. But turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I want us to look and use that as a backdrop this morning and to, to look at something that the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We do sometimes face that disappointment with God when he is... We're belaboring in our praying and our obedience in our life, and yet we say, God, why? Where are you in my times of trouble? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 encourages me in this area of unanswered prayer because we find in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we find the Apostle Paul faced an area where God did not answer his prayer. And uh, do we got it there? Okay, I'll let you keep, keep, keep working on it. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul reveals at the beginning there, he reveals that 14 years earlier, he experienced being caught up into heaven. Now what's interesting to me, this is free, is here the apostle Paul was caught up into an experience of going to heaven and says it was such of an experience that he didn't have words to describe it. And yet we've got a plethora of people who are claiming to visit heaven on a regular basis, and they write tons of books on it. Just something to think about. But this was a, such an experience in Paul's life that it changed him. It affected him. 
And when that great experience was over, something happened to Paul that changed his whole perspective on life. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Paul says, and by the way, chapter 12, when he just put it in context, when he's writing about his authentic vision and experience of going to heaven and having these this revelation of God, thank you, having this, re- let's go, go back, you're, you're moving faster than I am. All right, there we go, we'll stop there. Thanks, buddy, appreciate it. Um, he's doing it, if you remember, look at chapter 11, he's dealing with false prophets. So, he corrects them by saying, look, I'm an apostle authenticated by God, and if you want to know the real scoop of this encounter of heaven, let me tell you the real deal. So he's writing reluctantly. In fact, he says he doesn't even really identify himself, but we know it's him, where he says, I know a man. So Paul is teaching us this his visions and this famous or familiar passage about a thorn in the flesh. And he says in verse 7 that to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. You know, there are people that claim great revelations, and when you listen to them or talk to them, it's kind of all about their thing. Paul says, God, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these real surpassing great revelations that he, an apostle, experienced, there was given to me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, everybody wants to speculate over what that thorn in the flesh is. And your guess will probably be as good as the theologians and people who've tried to figure that out. Some think it's the opposition that Paul was receiving from the Jewish antagonists that were against his message. Some people think it was some kind of demonic oppression, and it does say about being a messenger of Satan. It doesn't say it was Satan. Some people think it was some kind of physical ailment, some weakness that tormented him. We really don't know, but the point is, is that this thorn in the flesh was of a kind of a, in such a way that Paul says in verse 8, look at verse 8, it says that he asked the Lord how many times to remove it? Three times. Now, probably something you know from your Bible study that numbers take on meaning in Scripture. It didn't mean that he asked once, twice, and three and said, all right, that's it, I'm not asking more. Three is a number of completeness. Just like when Jesus fed the 5,000. Does that mean there was 4,999 plus one? No, because typically in Jewish or Eastern fashion, they only counted the men. They typically didn't count the women and children. So Jesus could have easily fed close to 10,000 or more. In Eastern way of thinking, numbers are more conceptual than literal. In In our mind, three means two plus one, three. So what he's saying is, not that he had some formula, one, two, three. He's saying, I have asked where I am totally, there's nothing more I can say. God knows my heart. I'm, there's, you know, I, I've asked in such a way that I'm totally emptied 
of my bringing this before the Lord. I've asked three times. Now, can you imagine Paul, probably the greatest follower of Jesus who's ever lived, opened the doors of the gospel into Europe, wrote most of the New Testament, that he's a man that when he prayed about his need in his life, he found that God would not answer his prayer. Now, if Paul came in this morning and we had a prayer line, I guarantee you, and I'd be at the first of the line, I'd want to be prayed by Paul. All right? So what is this that if there's something that Paul, a man of prayer, an apostle, prayed that God did not answer his prayer? This morning, we're going to talk about the mystery, not the answer. It's a mystery, the mystery of unanswered prayer. And I might provoke more questions than answers. I might provoke more thought in, in you discerning why is it that this area in my life that maybe is gone unanswered. And so there's four areas that briefly this morning I want us to unpack as we open God's word with this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The mystery of unanswered prayer. But before we do, can we pray and ask God's blessing on his word? Father, this morning, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. God, I thank you, God, for your goodness and your mercy in our life. And I pray this morning, God, Lord, that you'd open your word. Bring encouragement and life to everyone who's here. And we ask this in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. All right, let's look at this as we unpack this idea of the mystery of unanswered prayer. Number one is this. If the request is wrong, God will say no. Now, that's very profound. Not because I said it, I was kidding. If the request is wrong, God's going to say no. For example, remember, and I know it's maybe you can't see the reference there, Matthew 17. Don't turn to it. But you remember that when Jesus took Peter, James, and John on that mountain and that the Lord was transfigured before them. And Peter was so overwhelmed, he said, Lord, it is good that we're here. And if you want... I'll make three tents or three monuments or three booths here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Because remember, Elijah, Elijah and Moses appeared with Jesus. And I love this later when you look at the passage. It says that while he was still speaking, God interrupted him. You ever had somebody that was just speaking such gibberish, you didn't even want him to finish you just, you just got, you cut right in. That's what God did. Poor Peter. It says that while he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter, Moses and Elijah are not on the same level with my son. Okay. So that was a request that God said, no. How about, remember this one, Peter, James, 
her John, James, and mom. You remember her request? She wanted her two boys to sit, one on the right and one on the left, when Jesus came into his kingdom. And Jesus said, said, you have no idea what you're asking. He turned down that request. When the request is wrong, God will say no. How about talking about James and John? These are guys that you really don't want around the throne without some accountability because it says in Luke 9 that when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered in a village of the Samaritans and to make preparations. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? In other words, Jesus, do you want us to flip the nuclear button and we'll just deal with this? Now, James and John were probably from, you know, the, they were probably, uh, the history suggests that they were more of kind of from the zealot wing of the Jewish political power. So that advocated a military political overthrow of Rome in order to establish the kingdom. So they were, you know, used to saying, look, let's just blow them away and show them who's in charge. The Lord said, no. How many times have we asked for something that was just flat out wrong? Listen, if you come to me and you say, the Lord told me to leave my wife and marry this other woman. I'll tell you, well, I shouldn't say it publicly what I might tell you, but I will tell you that that is not accurate. <laughs> That's probably a better way to say it since this is being recorded. There are times in which we ask or we appeal to God, and there are things that God knows one, are not in his best order for our life, and he will always say no. I remember years ago, I was 21, 22, and uh, some of you may have been, are familiar with Prison Fellowship. That was a ministry started by Chuck Colson, Charles Colson, who uh, used to be with Richard Nixon and got saved, and, and uh, while he was in prison, God birthed in him a prison ministry. It's funny how God works, isn't it? And uh, I was living in Virginia Beach, and they were looking for a position at their home office in Washington, D.C., in an area of marketing and publishing. And, and even though I was 21, 22, I'd had, because of the church I was in, had a lot of experience at the time. And so on a fluke, I uh, sent my resume there, and, and they called, and they wanted to fly me up. Now, when you're 21, 22, and want to be flown for a job interview, that's, you know, you're, man, that's a big deal. So I remember flying up there, and this was like, oh, man, this is, get to work in Washington, D.C., which I wanted to do, and to work for uh, a ministry that's headed by Charles Colson, and, and, uh, and the interview, and everything went fine, and I really didn't qualify for the position I was applying, but they were going to create kind of a, another position that I was, by experience and age, that I could be hired into. And, man, I was, I was so pumped. I was so excited. And when I 
went back to the airport to get on the plane, and I just, and I wanted to do this. I wanted to do this. But in my spirit, and some of you know what I mean, I don't mean anything weird, I just mean in my heart, my spirit, my mind, whatever you want to call it, the Lord clearly said, no, no. And that's where it ended. I did not, I knew. And you know, I wish I could tell you that every time God said no, I just acted obedient and said, thank you, Jesus. And I just kind of, now I got my spiritual crowbar out and I'm going to open that door. I'm going to make that happen. And well, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. You remember the, now here's a good theology. You know, last week I gave you some Batman theology, but here's another You'll, you'll learn quickly that too many references of mine come from movies and things like that. And it's, I really don't watch that many. It's just my quirky brain sometimes works that way. And uh, I'll try not to work in too many Godfather references. I'll wait a few months from now, but uh, I'll try to hold off on that. You know, there's just some movies you watch, and if they come on in the middle of something, you just, you, just, you know, there's certain ones. Well, you may, most many of you remember the movie Bruce Almighty, and certainly that is not theologically uh, correct or anything, but, you know, it was, it was a fun movie. But you remember when the Bruce, Jim Carrey's character, do you remember when he kind of complained to God, which was played by Morgan Freeman? Good, you know, choice there. And uh, he said, God, if I was in charge, I could fix my life like that. You just don't want to. And so God, in the movie, remember, let Bruce, Jim Carrey, become God for the day. And so he's sitting there. You remember at this... Uh, kind of uh, eternal uh, computer or something, and he uses his abilities the way he thinks they ought to be used. So what happens? He uh, clears traffic for his new sports car and takes revenge on fellow employees and impresses his girlfriend as he lassos the moon and pulls it closer to enhance the romantic mood and, and simultaneously causing a tidal wave in Japan when he does that. He hears thousands of voices, and just from the Buffalo residence, he's hearing all these voices. He's trying to deal with the blizzard of requests. He answers yes to everyone who prays to win the lottery, and what does that do? Everyone wins about a dollar in the lottery because he does that. You get the idea. He learns in a movie, say a movie, all right, that's all it is, but you get the point. He learns that there's some things that just he can't do. Some things and answers are left only to God. I love, because it's so true in my life, Romans 8, 28. God, think about this, God works all things together for my for good, for good to those who are called according, called according to his purpose. God works all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. If you don't love him, then you're not called according to his purpose, and he will not work all things together for good. In fact, you rebel and reject him, all things will work 
not so good. How about that? So if the request is wrong, God will say what? No. Secondly, if the timing is wrong, God will say slow. Slow. The timing of our request. We don't like words not yet. Our kids hate not yet. Can we do this? Not yet. Can I go here? Not yet. There's reasons for God's not yet. It's the timing of our request. We live in an instant, quick culture. We want everything now. We can't get enough of instant. You know, you can check yourself out. You can, at the grocery store, you can, I mean, everything is matter of speed and quickness. Fast food is timed on how quick they, the order is made to the time it is given to you in the little bag. We want things quickly, and we oftentimes approach God in that same way. The Bible says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience. Patience. Colossians 1.11, Paul prays that you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Paul would later say, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I'm more patient than I used to be. But we hate delays. We've got apps on our phone that we depend on in the mornings to make sure to tell us to reroute us through certain routes to work or whatever because we don't want to get caught in a delay. And I've learned that that's very common in our area to have delays on the highway or the interstate. We don't want to be delayed, but why does God use delays? Let me suggest a few reasons. One is to test our faith. What does testing reveal? What does test? It reveals what you know. If we were to build a bridge or some structure out here and, and, um, and before a car ever went across it, they would put a weight on that structure probably two or three times the amount that they project the cars to go across. Why? They want to test the integrity of the structure. We will be tested. Remember what James says? James says that we will be tested. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. He also would say, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Peter would say, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter would also say that the testing is to test the genuineness of your faith, that it become more precious than gold. What's the point? That God tests us not to confuse us, not to bewilder us, not to just perplex us. He tests us to find out the strength of this faith that we have. I found, and I wish it were the opposite, that the greatest lessons, the greatest periods of my growth and godliness have not occurred when everything was going well. It usually occurred when I was being tested to depend on him. Even this past week, 
a situation back in Illinois. The Lord just said, put it in my hands. Put it in my hands. And again, that's a conscious thing. We think that's just all. That's a conscious thing. I have to say, God, I am literally putting this in your hands. It's as if I just closed my eyes as if Jesus was sitting across from me, and it was like I was handing him a file and had that on it. And I said, okay, I am literally putting this in your hands. And when I start to get riled up about it, it was like, you want it back? Or did you put it in my hands? I'm putting it in your hands. I'm putting it in my hands. What is that? It's a test. And the situation turned out, isn't that what happens? We get all riled up about something. See, I'm a worst case, my wife says I'm a worst case scenario kind of guy. Anybody here a worst case scenario? All right? Meaning, if something happens, I jump to the end of what could happen, the worst thing. So that way, if something happens in between that, oh, it's, you know, but God's working on me, okay? How about the second thing? How about the second thing? Sometimes the request is delayed in order to modify what we're asking for. For example, questions asked, will this bring God glory? Will this advance God's purposes for my life? Will it help others to grow and to point to the gospel? Will it allow me to grow spiritually? Sometimes when we modify our requests and we look at what we're asking God, it's like he, if you ever wrote a paper in school, and sometimes the teacher turned it back in and said, do a rewrite and turn it back in. Sometimes he wants that request to go through a rewrite and say, you know what, why don't you, let's, let's hold off on that. Let's, let's think about that. Let's think about how this might honor me. Because really, if you haven't figured it out, the reason we're here is for him. And so my needs really are, what did Paul say? When I am weak, in other words, my weakness, that's what he says here in this passage, this weakness of mine, my weakness is really an opportunity to accentuate what is strong in God. What is weak in me shows forth what is strong in him. And so testing to modify. How about to develop our character. Oh, I hate that one, right? Oh, I don't want any character development. Yeah, you do. Isaiah reminds us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways, the Lord said, higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Why is he doing this? In order to conform us, shape us, mold us, and do his image. So we pray, and God doesn't answer. Maybe it's because the timing is wrong, and God is saying, slow down. Let's modify this. Let's think through this. Let's reevaluate. Let's do a rewrite. Thirdly, if you are wrong, God will say, grow. If you are wrong, not that the request is wrong, but if you are wrong, God says, grow. God wants relationship. 
God wants a relationship with us. And what could hinder our prayers in our life? Well, the Bible says that, one, prayerlessness. You do not have, James says, for James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. You see, relationship... Um, Bill Hybels, there's six of these that Bill Hybels in his book on prayer gives. He calls them six prayer busters, six things that will hinder our prayers. The first one is prayerlessness. Look at the next one, unconfessed sin. The Bible says in Isaiah 59 too, it's your sins that have cut you off. From God, because of your sins, he has turned away and will not listen anymore. Have you ever come to God in prayer and you begin to earnestly pray on something and it's like you can't get past this? And this thing is something that you've got to deal with in your life because God says you're not getting started until we deal with this. Clearly says that unconfessed sin will hinder God's hearing. When I say hearing, it doesn't mean he doesn't hear, but God's answering our prayer. How about this one? Another third prayer buster that Bill Hybels shares in his book, Unresolved or Relational Conflict. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew 5, 22 and 23. The New Living Translation says, if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar, he's talking to Jews in his day, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person then, then you come and you offer your sacrifice to God. What is he saying? There are some things God says that when they are broken in relational conflict, we come to church and we have broken relationships even here. You say, how do you know that? Because I've been in church all my life. Every church family has stuff like that. There are empty pews, empty seats because of broken relationships that may, maybe it's their issue, maybe it's our issue. The point is, is if we were going to communicate and pray, that's an area the Lord says you've got to deal with. Even Peter says to husbands, hello husbands, that you must give honor to your wives Treat your wife with understanding, the New Living Translation says. She may be weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Listen, treat her as you should so your prayers will not be hindered. God's saying, look, don't be coming to me. You got issues that you got to take care of. And until you take care of that, I don't care about your offering. I don't care about your tithe. I don't care what you do to impress me. You deal with that first. Then you come before me to worship. There's another one. Things that will bust open prayers 
where they will not be answered. Selfishness. James says in James 4, 5, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what you want so that it will give you pleasure. One of the traditions, a good tradition, we did back at the church in Illinois was that at the end of every morning service, one of the children from the children's church came and closed the service reciting the Lord's Prayer. And it was really neat. And so many people learned the Lord's Prayer just by listening week after week to those kids, different ones. When you think about the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, that's where it begins. And it ends affirming God's kingdom and God's will. And so as you pray, think of those as like bookends. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. How it ends. Think of those as bookends. And if you can't put your request with those two bookends that begin with God's holiness and ends with the advancement of God's priority of his kingdom, if your prayer and your need can't be wrapped in those bookends, maybe it's out of sync with what Jesus said to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added. All these things added when? I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Is that a motive in my prayer. How about this one? Uncaring attitudes. Another prayer buster that Hybels mentions. Proverbs 21:13. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. Wow. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Uncaring attitudes uncaring attitudes where we just say, you know, I don't really care about anybody except myself. Uncaring attitudes will hinder God's answer. And then there's just plain old lack of faith. And that's not this kind of stuff we see on TV. It's a faith that is built and grounded in the surety of who God is. Not what I expect or presume God will answer or not answer. Remember what James says? If any of you lack wisdom, let him do what? Ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach. It says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that person suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded person, unstable in all his ways. Listen, we can't receive Christ outside of faith. Faith is the surety, Hebrews says, of the things Hope for the surety of things believed. I remember uh, hearing a story of a little girl in a Sunday school class, and she was asked by her teacher. Uh, the teacher said, what is faith? And the little girl said, faith, and I think that adults have this sometimes. She said, faith is believing in things that you know aren't true. I'm afraid she might be closer to the way a lot of people think. No. Faith is not faith in faith. Faith is in the surety 
of Christ. On this rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. I may not know all of what's ahead. In fact, I know very little. But I stand on the surety of the God who works all things together for good, who loves me and only wants my best. I'll just say this. Sometimes in pastoral ministry and elder, you'll be asked questions. And I found that, like Ed asked me a question the other last week, and I just said, I don't know. I'm at that place in my life where I'm like, I don't know the answer to that. And I have a feeling Ed likes asking those kinds of questions. I just have that suspicion. <laughs> but seriously, sometimes people ask you, my niece committed suicide. Is she in heaven? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, here's my answer. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this. I do know that God is holy. God is merciful. God is just. He's not willing that any should perish. I know that God does all things in conformity to what glorifies him and ultimately works together for the good of his purpose. So while I cannot answer with any surety that answer, nobody can, I do know this. God is trustworthy and reliable. And I can trust God that whatever God's answer is, that's the right answer. That's the right thing to do. But I do know that I can say with surety and confidence that God is always consistent in his character. Because the Bible says that he loved me while I was the most unlovable. While I was yet in my sin, Christ died for the ungodly. So that I don't know, and there's plenty I don't know. But I know God, and I know what the Bible says of who God is. And we can trust him and rely upon him. Lack of faith. Not faith in faith, but coming to him. Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. That's not a carte blanche to start patrolling the car lots this afternoon. Do you realize there's a lot of wacky stuff that flies under the banner of Christianity? And we have to answer for all the nonsense that goes out there. Jesus is saying there is nothing so great that I can't handle. So we come to him with a clean heart, not harboring unconfessed sin. We come to him with a compelling plea, does it glorify the Lord? Asking with a conquering faith, ask in 100% that I've committed it to him in faith. God will use that to grow in my life. And the last, in our study from 1 Corinthians 12, we said if the request is wrong, God will say no. If the timing is wrong, God will say slow. If you or I are wrong, God will say grow. But when the request is right, the timing is right, and my heart is right, God will say, let's go. Real profound theology, in it? They all rhyme. I had to work hard at that. God wants to move that mountain for us. He wants to change the circumstance to answer that prayer. He wants to do it because he wants to work in our life and be glorified when people say, 
look at that life and see how great that God is. There must be something real to this. There must be something real about this God because I see him working in this person's life. The Bible says, confess your trespasses to one another. I think I have it on the screen. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, woman, avails much. There's something about effectual, fervent prayer. Paul said in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who who can be against us? Paul said, Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, finish it, until the day of Christ Jesus. You'll be amazed at how often God will say, let's go. You see, this is not titled the answer to unanswered prayer because only God is the answer to unanswered prayer. Now, we use this a lot, but it's just the only way you can say it. God, when we talk about God is sovereign, that means that God is in total control of all things. There is not an atom or a molecule running independent of the purposes of God. That's a mystery. How does that all work? I don't know. I don't know how my car starts, but it didn't stop me from coming to church this morning. I don't understand a lot of things, but it doesn't stop me from acting on it. God is sovereign, and he has absolute total control. It means that his will and purposes will be accomplished in this earth and in my life. He always, get this, God always operates on plan A. God does not have plan B. God never says, uh-oh. Uh-oh. Didn't see that coming. Even, if you read Acts 2, Peter said that even the crucifixion was preordained before the foundation of the world. And yet in that same breath, he says, and you crucified him. So you got free will and the sovereignty of God in the same breath. How does that all work? I don't know. God doesn't have a problem with it. It just works. Charles Spurgeon wrote many years ago, or a collection of writings that some of you may be familiar with, called Morning and Evening. Great devotional. I try to read it most every day. And there are several times things that are in there that just, just, I mark them and write dates by them. And several years ago, when I was going through a, my own valley, a tough time in my own life, and questioning why God did not respond in answering prayers in my life. And on August 3rd, in the morning and reading, and they're divided up with morning and evening readings. That's why it's called morning and evening. He was writing this devotional from Revelation 21, 23, called The Lamb, The Lamb is the Light. I have it on the screen. This is a quote. Light, talking about Jesus being the light. Light is also the emblem of knowledge. 
in heaven, our knowledge will be perfect. But the Lord Jesus himself will be the fountain of that perfect knowledge. Look at this phrase, dark providences. That's an old term of the providences. Providence means pro-video, providence, the God sees in advance. Dark providences are those things that are under the rubric of God's sovereignty that are not pleasant. Dark providences. Never understood before, talking about heaven, will then be clearly seen and all that puzzles us now will become plain to us in the light of the Lamb. I believe that. I believe there are many things we will never understand this side of heaven. But I do know that when I see him face to face, all will be perfect. Why, you know, will I care about some things? Probably not. I have a feeling like that song, and I quoted it last week, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely, strangely, strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray.